the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome to this new episode of Sake on Air, the first English language podcast about sake and shochu. We usually record from the information center of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. But today, again, um, we'll be recording uh, with or through Zoom. And I am Sébastien, one of your regular hosts. And today with me um, in the same conversation, have two of our regular hosts. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. And this is Justin here. Chris, how are you doing? Sebastian, how are you gentlemen doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah. Doing yeah. fine. Getting yeah, not... ready for, for, for big rain. But... Yeah, more, yeah. More, more heavy rains coming through here pretty quick. Yeah, rain and typhoons. They're on their way. So, I mean, today we'd like to explore what it means to be a foreign kurabito in Japan. I mean, kurabito is or means brewery worker. I mean, we're going to touch on the practicalities for those who chose to go that route as well as uh, take a step back and think about what's the multiplication of such very rich experiences for breweries uh, means for sake, its culture, and, um, and the industry in, in general. So we've invited uh, three gentlemen who happen to be brewing sake uh, in Japan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, would you kindly introduce yourself? Uh, hi, yes, uh, this is uh, George Navarrete. I'm uh, originally from New York City. I've been in Japan for about a year and a half now, and I'm now working at Matsui Shuzo. Uh, we're a craft brewery, very small craft brewery in downtown Kyoto City. You know, it's obviously been a very different experience. I, I spent most of my career in Wall Street as an investment banker. So this is about as big a change for a second career as you can imagine but I'm enjoying it uh, immensely. Great to, great to have you with us today. All right, and Andy, how about you, sir? Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Andrew Russell. I'm from Edinburgh, Scotland in the UK. Um, I'm currently working for uh, Imada Shuzo Honten in Akitsu, Hiroshima Prefecture. Prior to that, I was uh, also working at another brewery uh, called Juhachi Zakari Shuzo uh, in the neighboring Okayama Prefecture. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And last. Um, yeah, last but certainly uh, not least. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm JJ. I'm from the UK. Um, I've been in Japan about seven years, eight years, maybe. Um, Nara for the past two. And I've work, been working at uh, Imanishi Seibei Shoten Harushika for the past year or so. All right. Um, actually, the first foreign grabito I heard of is now quite a famous person in the world of sake. He is Philip Harper from, from the UK as well. Um, Philip arrived in 1988 in Japan and two years later embarked on a new life, which is sake brewing. And in 2001, he was the first foreigner to get this accreditation as a toji or master brewer. I think he was part of the Nambu guilds. So, that's northeastern Tohoku. I don't know if he was an inspiration for you guys, um, but uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I feel judging from the taste of sake, um, 
I, I, I think that his association with the Kinoshita brewery in Kyoto prefecture has been quite a success. Um, working in Japan is a challenge for foreigners in general. I think everyone around the table will, will agree about that. And in particular, I mean, judging from my relationships who are in the craft or hospitality sectors, I would rank uh, becoming an apprentice in a traditional Japanese environment on top of the list of the challenges you can face here. Mind you, I think the reverse is probably true for, for Japanese people who want to uh, go and, and learn new skills abroad. Uh, but I'm very much interested to hear uh, about this challenge because the, the, the way of transmitting um, skills using verbal and nonverbal communication uh, in, in, in Japan is, is quite different from, from the West. But before we, we dig into that, um, I, I think uh, we have a, a few personal questions to, uh, to, to ask you. I mean, ca can, you, can you tell us a little bit how you discover sake and, and, and why? I mean, was there a moment of epiphany as we often say around this table? Um, I, I, I can kick off. I, I think the, the short answer is yes, which I suspect it's gonna be the case for, for all of us here. I married into this culture. Um, my, my wife's from Kyoto. Uh, we've been married over 20 years and uh, I've been coming back and forth from this city and New York for more than 25 years. But I would say my epiphany moment happened actually at the uh, Japan Society in New York City where they hold annual sake tasting events uh, in the fall of, of every year. And uh, I would say it's probably about 20 years ago where I attended and it was there it was the first time I tried a Jumai Daiginjo, and uh, I was blown away. It's the really it's the first time I tasted sake that could be so crisp, light, elegant. You know, and after that, obviously, I uh, you know it was more anecdotal. Uh, I sort of tried to pick up as much as I could. But it was several years later uh, when I decided to become a kikizakeshi that I kind of decided to take it to the next level. Uh, but I would say that that moment at the Japan Society drinking the Gasan was clearly the epiphany of sake for me. Mm, I mean, Georgia, you said the next level, but going all the way to brewing sake is, is quite a jump indeed. Was there a particular factor there? Oh, God, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, what, what the way this started was, I, I think for me, uh, I, I became a Kikizakeshi through SSI, the Sake Service Institute, in 2016. So it was about four years ago now. And uh, for me, I, it was interesting to discover that it was a thing. It was something that you could actually do. Uh, because it's one of those things that sometimes you wonder, well, you know, it's fascinating, but how does one enter into that world? And uh, that was at least the first step. But like anything in life, you wonder, okay, what do I do with this? And uh, one thing is getting credentialized. Another thing is how do you sort of make a business or career out of this? And I will admit, I, I was not at all sure at first. And for me, it was kind of an, an exploration of it. So it was a combination of factors where I decided to, uh, to do my own self-study and uh, learn about as much sake as I can, frankly, by drinking a lot of sake and, and, and really understanding a lot of the different brands. And through that, I started attending a lot of a tasting events uh, and sort of sake promotion events in the New York City area. 
And through that work, I became acquainted with a woman that was one of the sales reps at Mutual Trading. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a funny story. Uh, they had a representative there uh, who spoke, you know, frankly, pretty poor English. And uh, she was being confronted with a lot of questions about the sake that they were serving. And uh, I wasn't sure whether or not I could sort of jump in and help out uh, to answer some of the questions. You know, I didn't want to have her lose face, but I, I did anyway. And uh, so after doing that, uh, the, uh, the sales rep from Mutual came up to me and said, I don't know who you are, but you seem to know a lot about sake. Can I hire you? And uh, I said, sure. And, uh, and that's really how it happened. And uh, so she basically offered me a job to do promotions on behalf of uh, mutual trading. And I spent the first next two plus years doing that. And I, I basically traveled all around the New York City area, hosting dozens and dozens of these types of tasting events. And, and through that, it obviously gave me a lot more sake knowledge and a lot more comfort in terms of how to promote and understand the beverage. And so I said, well, if I can do that in New York, I decided to start doing events on my own uh, here in Kyoto. And it was through that work, uh, I eventually came to, uh, to meet Matsui-san. But Excellent. the idea here is I think for me, I realized that after doing a lot of the tastings, you really are never going to truly understand sake until you make sake. It's been extremely humbling, but that's a long-winded way of saying that's how I got here but uh, I'll, I'll get to the story on particularly how I got to Matsui Shuzo later. Andy, would you like to go? I mean, Sure, it, I mean, it might be a little disappointing. I, I didn't have that kind of eureka moment that you know, so many other people seem to have. Uh, it, was, it was really a, a very gradual, slow process uh, that, that I somehow ended up you know, working for a 200-year-old brewery. Um, for, for me, it, it kind of, it became a necessity to study sake. In first year at Edinburgh University, they have this event called Innovative Learning Week, uh, where classes are suspended for a whole week. And you're, the idea is you do cultural things that are relevant to your department. Um, now, of course, the students renamed the Innovative Drinking Week um, because everyone just sort of looked at it as an excuse to take a week off. Um, and I was, a, I was a mature student and all the events for my department in Japanese were manga and uh, video games and stuff like that um, and I thought you know I want to do something that's a bit more relevant to Innovative Drinking Week so I'm going to have a sake tasting event and uh, I didn't actually think the teachers would go for it but they said sure we'll give you some money the rule is it's got to be some sort of event where you know people everyone can participate in it you can't just buy sake and everyone gets drunk <laughs> so I had this very flawed idea to to make a, a sake tasting competition um, based on the, uh, I think I based it on the SMV value or something and whoever got closest to it. Anyway, it, it didn't matter. I knew nothing about sake at the time, um, but it was, it was a great success, weirdly. Uh, and the teachers to my, it was mainly the teachers that seemed to enjoy it. To my surprise, they said the next day, um, you absolutely have to do that again next year. Um, but I could kind of tell they were, they were starting to ask me questions about sake and things. So I started really kind of getting into it and, and studying about it, you know, so that I could be prepared for the next event. I think it was just about the time where they were starting to ask us, what do you want to do for your dissertation? Um, I thought, well, I've done all this work of research sake. I'll just do my dissertation on sake. Um, you know, that kind of led to, you know, having more of an interest in it and starting to buy it 
um, although it was you know staggeringly expensive to and difficult to get hold of in the UK. Um, that was kind of the start of my journey, and uh, yeah, like, like George, how if you told me then that I would end up, you know, what three or four years later working in a brewery, you know, I would, I would have thought you were absolutely crazy. But but yeah, there, there's there's a lot a lot happened between you know that stage and the stage that I'm at now. But I, I'll, I'll, as George said, I'll keep that for for later. <laughs> JJ, what about you? I'm gonna have to say I'm more similar to like Andy in the sense of a gradual. Um, path. Um, more, there's no like big eureka sort of moment. Um, more, more, so we're talking about like far, foreign like brewers in Japan. You've already mentioned Philip Harper. So I guess the best way to describe it is the, um, you know, like the icebreaker drink that they, they have. I think it's a really, really good description of like my journey in the sense that it was, sake was always like, I came here to try and study the language. Um, I was a terrible student, like bottom of my, my class. When I came out here, um, I struggled a lot with speaking and like getting the courage to talk and stuff. So that whole like liquid courage that alcohol can give you and uh, the icebreaker that sake can be between you and random people in a random bar, like sitting on a table and like having an old guy just be like, hey, right, no, me, no, me, no, me. and then you're just like, okay, I guess I'm drinking this. Like, um, thank you. And then you spend like eight, six, the next six hours wake up with a terrible hangover, but after a couple of times, you start to understand the words of this crazy old guy. And then you realize that normal people, actually you can understand them quite easily now because you've, you've figured out how to understand this crazy accented drunk old man. That when you talk to a normal person, it, it becomes a bit easier. Um, so in the sense of an icebreaker, I guess that was how it started. It really helped me on my journey of like getting used to speaking to people here. Um, and then like making friends and connections and things like that. Like the whole reason I'm working at the, the brewery at the moment is um, was I was at a bar um, and the, the owner was, uh, used to work at, in the tasting section. And she was like, hey, why don't you go help? Like you speak Japanese, you speak English. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay. And I went like once a week, every so often. So the idea of like, there was no big like, oh my God, this is amazing sort of thing. So much as I used it as a way of like meeting people and getting to know people and like building relationships in a way that like is would be difficult without it if that makes sense so uh, gentlemen maybe in in turn again uh, would you kindly just give us a little bit of context about the breweries you're working at and share with us the the, the practicalities of your uh, daily life i mean the kind of the job you do the, the tasks that um, are yours at the brewery uh, Matui Shuzo is, is a tiny brewery. We're about a 300 koku uh, production annually. Uh, it's a craft brewer. Everything is literally done by hand, uh, even the bottling. The advantage I think I had was, you know, Kyoto's an international town. So uh, the, uh, the owner and Toji, uh, Matsui-san, uh, speaks very good English. Uh, he was trained as a prosecutor at uh, Keio University in Tokyo. So he came to this, as I said, and he's very young. Uh, he's only in his early 40s. And so, so I didn't have a lot of that culture shock. But in terms of what the work uh, involved, I, you know, I was hired to do two things. Uh, one was uh, similar to what JJ was describing in terms of um, you know, being in the shop and assisting with uh, managing tastings, et cetera, with, uh, uh, with the foreign visitors that we had at the brewery. 
But uh, the Chacho told me in exchange for doing that on behalf of the brewery, he would teach me how to make sake, which was obviously, you know, my primary objective for going there. So the way the brewery is staffed, uh, there's only three basically full-time brewers, including myself. So again, very small operation, but we do hire a lot of interns uh, from, you know, uh, Kyoto's filled with universities. We're right next to Kyoto, uh, Kyoto University. So we get a lot of very young college age kids that come and, and can help out with some of the more uh, uh, mundane tasks at the brewery. So, you know, in terms of what the day-to-day -day responsibilities are, it's exactly what you would imagine. Uh, you know, the typical morning is spent uh, washing, soaking the rice, uh, rice steaming. Uh, if we're making koji that week, uh, we go into the koji moodle. Uh, one of the things I've enjoyed about the brewery is I was included in every single task uh, from the moment I arrived. Uh, it wasn't Which is not the case every I had to spend one year doing this and then before I'm allowed to, to get into the moodle, I was basically brought on uh, to be involved in just about every task from, from the beginning. So it's done everything. And so, you know, a typical day might involve doing the, the rice steaming uh, into the koji muro in the morning, and the afternoon might be spent uh, either doing uh, bottling or, or some sort of other uh, brewery-related tasks. And during the busy season, I might spend a few hours in the shop doing tastings in the afternoon as well. Uh, you know, obviously, since COVID, uh, I don't spend really any time in the shop these days. So it's really been more of a full-time brewing side. Real quick here, I guess maybe just to give our listeners perspective. So, um, George, you said you guys are about 300 koku or, yeah. with a staff of essentially a staff of three. Uh, Andrew, for you, what's what's your production and what's your, what are your staff numbers? Um, so we're we're obviously a bit bigger than that, but we're still what you would call a, a small brewery. Yeah. Um, Yamada-san does about. Uh, 650 koku, um, which but is still about very 100 small. of, yeah, 100 of that is liqueur as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's a, actual nihonshu about 550 koku. So it's yeah, yeah it's, it's still very very small. My last yeah. brewery was was smaller still. Um, but yeah, I the, the, I guess the difference between George and JJ Yamada-san is we're obviously in a very very small town. Um, you know, there there isn't any tourism to to speak of. Uh, I mean, we have a place where you can buy sake, but there isn't a shop or tasting or, you know, that kind of thing. And we don't really get much footfall um, from, you know, from walk-in customers, mostly just local people. Um, yeah. So I've, I've, I've never done the, you know, dealing with foreign customers uh, part of it. Um, it's been strictly brewing uh, and uh, kura work. I suppose over the summer, uh, I did get involved with uh, a lot of online events uh, that were that were carried out in English, um, and I've made a few contacts for for overseas sales, um, but but that isn't my uh, my main job at the brewery at all. So so while we're brewing, uh, I, I'm I'm one of the I suppose the, the core brewing team, and um, the, the the setup is uh, maybe slightly unconventional. Um, we we have have obviously a, a toji um, but we don't have the kashira position uh, we, we have instead we have a, a, a production manager and I work mostly with uh, with with him uh, obviously our toji is uh, Imada-san but yet normally during the brewing season uh, we the, the three of us start at about five o'clock in the morning um, preparing the uh, preparing the rice steamer and um, once we're waiting on that happen that's kind of where we uh, 
we we sort of branch off, um, and uh, I, I would get involved with uh, you know checking temperatures with the Moromi. Um, we start preparing the uh, the analysis of the uh, of all the tanks, uh, and we prepare the motor as well. Um, so I, I help with that. I don't prepare the motor myself, um, but I help with that. Um, and then obviously everyone gets together. The, the other staff start um, you know trickling in. Uh, and we all get together for the main event, which is obviously uh, shikomi, which, which is uh, you know actual mashing. And we'll have a lot of part-time people. So um, on a really busy day, there'll be um, seven of us uh, where we're doing shikomi. Um, but that will obviously, you know, go down to about four um, after lunch. Um, and then, so so basically, we have we have one girl that um, that brews in the morning. Uh, and then tends to to go into the the shop in the afternoon, uh, and help the other girl out. Um, you know, obviously have to prepare shipments and things as well. Um, so so yeah, we have that difference. And then we have about two or three part timers um, that that come in for because the the main event obviously is is mashing. That's when you need everyone hands on. Um, one once you do that, the the actual number of people you need is isn't as much as you know, six or seven for a brewery our size, maybe three or four and you can manage. And then, yeah, the, the day kind of, from that point, it really depends on what the work schedule is for that day. If we're pressing, then then that will be my main focus up until early lunchtime. Um, yeah, there, there's always something, uh, you know, different. Um, you know, each day from that point on uh, is is completely different. And then I imagine, and then JJ, how, where do you, where do you slot into the, into the um, scheme of things? So I didn't have much knowledge about breweries and really when I, before I joined, um, the, the whole reason why I started working at the tasting table was, um, or why I took that job up because I, I used to do some tour guide stuff around the Naramachi area. And a lot of the times people would ask like, Hey, can you like tell us about sake and stuff? And I would take them to the the Harishka brewery tasting and be like, yeah, you go, then <laughs> you can listen to them explain it. Um, and then by chance I got invited to work at the tasting. And then as I was working at the tasting, suddenly the, um, once someone at the brewery came over and was like, Hey, um, we're like a couple of people down for this brewing season. Are you interested in like working in the brewery over winter? And, um, I was like, Hey, that sounds kind of interesting. So I put my other hotel job on pause for six months. So I, I just joined with no knowledge. So I had no idea. I just assumed it was a small-ish brewery. Um, but then listening to everyone talk about the Koku thing, um, I asked today, because I saw in the, the, the door, I was like, uh, how much Koku do we actually make? Because I'm not used to the, the numbers yeah. yet. Mm. And they were like, oh, like around 2,000-ish, 2,400. Yeah. That, that's, like, that's big. Probably at some point you'd introduce what a Koku is to our listeners. One Koku is 101 point eight liter bottles. So that's the biggest size bottle of sake that you can buy. So basically 2000 times 100 of those. It's a lot. That's a lot. Right. Of stuff. Yeah. And um, I had no idea. So um, obviously it's suddenly much bigger in that sense. That's a pretty big size brewery that you're working at compared to the other two. So how is the brewing routine at um, uh, your brewery? So, then? cause I got took on as they were like desperate for people. And um, I was, just used as a at least last year this is my first i've only done a f- one one season right so i was used as a hand, handyman everywhere basically like mm-hmm. there was no like you can't do this you can't it was like we need your help here we need i was i was there to be used in every place that was necessary so i had to help out like in the muro when there was small amounts um so like they have a, a koshiki and they have also a, a denzoku jomaiki um 
for like the a large the amounts. Steam yeah, 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 the continued yeah. for the large amounts. So for like smaller amounts, they'd use the Koshki, and then for big amounts, they use the continuous steamer. Um, so if it was the continuous steamer, I'd end up like end up cleaning that, like keeping on, and I all of all of the conveyor belts and stuff were working properly. That's good. Um, <laughs> then yeah, then like um, once everything's gone in, I'd run to the actual brewery because they shoot they would shoot the rice through an air shooter into the brewery. Yeah and then switch with the, the one dude who was like doing the kaiiri on his own and then take five minute shifts doing like the kaiiri um, for however many of the, however long that would be is 15 minutes or something like that. Um, and then once that's done, like run to like back to help with the cleaning in a different area. Or like if it's the, if there's the murder going at the same time, sometimes I'd be told to go help with like the, um, the tiny thing, like where they put the koji on the rice. Um, yeah, like I was just sort of thrown everywhere um, in, in the morning during the Shikomi sort of thing. And then the afternoon, it would depend on, like Andy said, whether there was like a, um, uh, whether they were actually pressing or not. Um, if they were, then I'd have to go help with like making sure that the, with either Kaede, making sure stuff's going through into the press. Or like um, if there was pressing the previous day, then I'd have to like be moving the kasa, like the sake leaves or whatever, out of the tanks. So like, these container tanks so we could put the next one into that and keep dealing with that there's a lot of all over the place so running around like a crazy person basically. there's a bit of trial and error in sake brewing isn't there like you, things don't always go for justin could probably chime in here as well things don't always go quite to plan every day do they there's a lot of variables that right. change that's almost almost never okay. <laughs> yeah that's, that's like when when annie when annie said like it's hard to say what like what i do every day because every day is different like it, it really does depend because you're like throw go you, this is going wrong go over there do this like you get thrown in a different direction every day basically and maybe, maybe we should explain for our listeners what an air shooter is i mean i yeah I'll try. Uh, it's a sort of a long flexible i mean a long plastic uh, tube that helps carrying the rice from one spot to the other in the brewery and yeah. uh, as the name indicates it's uh, air pressure that actually pushes the rice to the uh, other side of the tube yeah. is that a correct way i would refer to it as a hose personally but a hose. I, ah, okay that's, but I that's, think that's the word quite I... explanation it just pu it pushes the rice and the uh, sometimes the koji as well along at speed using air from one part of the brewery to the other side of the brewery because the alternative is to carry it by hand i don't know how much of that you guys do as well i that obviously that's quite hard work you're carrying quite heavy tubs with rice in or bags with rice in but that's how they used to do it in the olden days I, i've actually never used an air shooter right um, that doesn't surprise me yeah both my breweries we, we we kind of have a makeshift um so at, at the uh, at the, the final stage of the cooling the rice, yeah. um, it, it, it would normally get sort of spat out into into that machine that would then uh, send it off further down the line into the straight into the tank in the air shooter. But um, at both the breweries I've worked, we just line up with uh, with a mesh, yeah, um, and uh, and catch the rice and then run off uh, to to put it into the tank. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of intense work. <laughs> yeah, is it is it challenging? Is it really hard for the body? What what would you say? Um, well, I, I only did it in my last brewery um, because this time uh, it's me and my uh, and my senpai that that shovel the rice. Um, so I'm I'm at the kind of other end now, so directly from the the, the koshke. That that is also very very physical work. Um, but but yeah, it's 
it's intense because you have to run uh, and you're usually kind of avoiding things that are in the middle of the brewery. Um, of course, dropping it is unthinkable. Um, and then you've still got to pass it off to someone without dropping it as well. So, uh, and you, you do that intensely. Um, you know, everyone kind of has to, to really, really concentrate at that point because if something goes wrong, um, you know, you're working to a temperature. Uh, the temperature is really, really important in sake brewing. Um, so if you have to stop for whatever reason, um, then the rice starts to cool down. Um, the the, the toji's obviously got got their eye on the moromi, and they start having to uh, make adjustments. It's it's a it's a, a worse scenario. And you have um, so to keep yeah, your the key in check as well. You're running about, yeah. climbing scaffolding. You know, maybe carrying this thing, and one false step, and you know, it's a pretty dangerous uh, line of work. I think when we when we run with it, um, at one point we were measuring the weight just to double check something, and like the buckets averaged out to be about like 17 kilograms. But we like had on like your shoulder and running through and we were running with it. Yeah. I have to say, I had a go, uh, a little bit ago, bro, not, nothing pales comparison to you guys, but I did have a go at carrying the rice from the steamer. And uh, I don't know how tall you guys are, but um, I have to say, I think foreigners perhaps have a slight advantage to Japanese because we're a little bit taller and we can kind of rest the, the bucket on our kind of uh, shoulder at a kind of a, a closer height to the actual uh, koshiki. I found that a little bit easier than my, uh, Japanese counterparts. I don't know if you did as well. Well, in, in our particular case, yes, I think there are height advantages, but there are also many disadvantages. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, like hitting uh, your head. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I know. Uh, I know, Chris. You're uh, you're even taller than me, but at, at 190 yeah. centimeters, it's um, it's uh, it, you know. I, 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 I do use it as an excuse, perhaps to an extent. But one reason I'm not working in a brewery is one of yeah. the reasons I'm not working in a brewery is definitely the height. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think one of the questions you're going to ask later is in terms of some of the surprises on, on the work. I think uh, both Andy Please and Andy have on it. Yeah. One of the things is, uh, is how physical uh, this job is. I mean, uh, it, from our vantage point, I mean, you know, one of my tasks is to scale the rice. Uh, they arrive at the brewery. Uh, we, we don't have our own polisher. That's, that's done in Fukui Prefecture and then shipped to the brewery. So they arrive in about 30 kilo uh, bags of which then me, yours truly, has to personally split uh, those 30 kilo bags into smaller bags, somewhere usually between 12 and 14 kilos that we ultimately use for the semi and shinseki, and then ultimately use for the steaming. So lugging around 30 kilo bags of rice uh, when you're scaling it, when it's uh, uncooked, then moving it to the, uh, to the area where we do the, um, uh, the washing and soaking, Again, carrying uh, those things uh, endlessly if you're doing upwards of two, 300 kilos of rice a day. And then steaming it, we don't have any machines whatsoever. So it's literally shoveled out of the uh, koshiki into what we call, uh, it's just kind of a, a large wooden pallet with a, 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 a sort of a, a mesh underneath that allows the rice to cool and we have a fan attached to that. But all of the rice is carried by hand on these burlap sacks uh, to the uh, each one of the individual tanks, and so there's absolutely nothing automated. And I can tell you, every last thing of that is heavy. So one of the things I had to adjust is how physical uh, this job is. It's uh, probably much more so than I, I had anticipated. I knew it was going to be physical. I just didn't realize it was going to be this physical. And, and and for you guys and JJ and Andy, in in two words, what's the most challenging part of the job? Um. 
for, for me, the most challenging part of the job is, is the isolation from, uh, from your friends and family. Um, I think we're talking about the, the physical aspect of it and what have you, but, but there's also the, the mental aspect of it as well. Um, obviously, it's going to be different for JJ and George, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know the circumstance of their breweries, but, um, but both of the breweries I've worked at, it's, it's five or six months um, of just completely forget your social life. Um, you know, you're, you're, you start at five o'clock in the morning and you maybe finish at about half past four, five o'clock at night by which point you, you're useless, you can't do anything. Um, you know, all, all you want to do is get in the bath and have something to eat and then fall asleep and, you know, repeat the next day. Um, so you, you basically cut yourself off from, uh, from, from all your friends. Um, I, I think uh, JJ actually got in touch with me um, before he started brewing uh, and said, look, is, you know, is this a good idea? Have you got any <laughs> yep. pointers and stuff like that? Uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to kind of be too negative about it because I wanted to kind of encourage him as well. But um, I, I said that the one thing that you'll find though is um, if, if you like drinking sake and you know, you like being in izakayas and, and all these kind of things like I did, uh, I said, the thing you've got to remember is you go from being the guy that, you know, that you see on Facebook that has the, you know, goes to the nice izakaya and stuff like that. Uh, you, you're not that guy anymore. You go to being the guy that just gets to look at that and and really, you know, <laughs> wish that you were in that position. Um, because from, you know, from autumn to, to spring, um, your your social life is on hold. So, and it gets very wearing after a while towards the end of the season. So. So at least JJ, you knew what to expect. <laughs> well, you you said earlier about like, what was your um, what was your expectations going going into it? Um, yeah. and my expectations, I didn't have any expectations, and I ended up finding Andy and was like, hey, what do I need to expect? So I, I got like information directly from the source before, you know, <laughs> actually starting. So my expectations fairly lined up with what I was told. <laughs> hey, well, is it the biggest challenge for you? This uh, um, Ed, that's actually not not the biggest challenge for me so much because of um, because of how close I already live to the brewery anyway. Like I I was already living like less than a ten minute walk from it when this opportunity and my places that I would drink are on my walk home anyway. So like it's like a walking home from the brewery, have a beer or have a sake and come home to the house and go to sleep. Like it's my general routine in that sense hasn't changed so much. Um, so, so I would surprisingly not that bad. Um, but then again, last year, my position was a little bit different from what I'm going to be doing this year. So I'm not sure how that's going to change things. Um, so I was helping everywhere last year, but this year I'm going to be working directly under the, the person who's in charge of the motto as like a direct help focus on that one area, um, which is a lot more, um, a lot earlier start than uh, previously. Because previously we started, we only started at, compared to Andy, really, really late. Like we would start at like 7, 6.30, 6, 7.30. When I originally spoke to, I, I think actually maybe even my original conversation with Andy helped me in the result because he, he gave me this, it's going to be really early. It's going to be like all of these, like, and my reality was a little bit, like less than that. So even it, it, the, my expectation was down here, like quite low. And then I'm going to be really tired. I'm going to be up super early. And surprisingly, there was a lot more like, you know, leeway there that gave me a bit of a um, breathing space. Yeah. If that makes sense. What about, what about you, George? Can you relate to that? Or has it been a little bit different? 
Yeah, I'm very much interested in, in how you learn, not how you learn, but how you've been taught your skills. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think in terms of, uh, you know, just kind of looking at the, the experience and, uh, and sort of making the, uh, the cultural adjustments, as, I, as I've mentioned, that was actually much easier than I expected. Um, one of the things I always talked about with uh, a lot of the, the junior interns is, is that, because they often wondered, you know, who are you and why are you working at this brewery? And uh, they also were always surprised at how knowledgeable I seemed to be about the sake brewing process. And what I explained to them was, was very simple. Uh, even through the Kikizakashi, the you know, sake sommelier training and, and all the books I've read and all my own personal research, I said, you don't understand. There, there's no way in the world I would have been hired at this brewery if I hadn't come in with some pretty deep base of knowledge. I mean, there's no real reason to hire uh, a foreigner such as myself, particularly one with absolutely no background uh, in, in the sake world into the brewery unless I'm bringing immediate value to them. And so I think from that vantage point, what I was able to convince, you know, our, our sort of, uh, our chacho, our, our, our boss and, uh, and Toji is the same guy, was look at it from both a practical business point of view in terms of here's what I'm bringing to you. I have a, uh, you know, I've worked at an importer uh, in New York. I'm a, I'm a trained sommelier. I can speak to sake knowledge. I know a lot academically about sake, and I can help explain that to your customers when they come and visit for tastings. And so in exchange, you know, you can obviously help me in terms of how to sort of actually make sake, what the technical process was. And uh, so that's, that's really how I got into the brewery. My biggest concern when I joined the brewery was not the relationship with my toji that had already been established. What it was was with the other staff. You know, the idea is, is that, who are you? I mean, why are you here? I mean, other than, you know, sort of being the, the toji's sort of pet project. And I didn't want to be that guy. And to my immense and endless appreciation and surprise, the, uh, you know, the, the foreman uh, equivalent, uh, we don't call them that, but the foreman equivalent and the other brewer could not have been more welcoming. Uh, they have been terrific, really, really going out of their way to make me feel at home there. So I never really have felt any of those cultural elements in terms of, of being excluded or somehow or another being different or needing to earn my way into it. I think they recognize what I could bring to the brewery and you know, they recognize that I could help teach them that side. And in exchange, they could help teach that, uh, you know, this more of the practical knowledge. So. For me, that was the biggest surprise and also the, the biggest sort of comfort I had at working at the brewery. But he very much runs it differently. I mean, our, we brew year round. And so uh, it's, it's one much more like a sort of traditional business. So I, you guys are going to be shocked here, but my day starts at 9 a.m. <laughs> Not at five, <laughs> 5 or 7, at 9 a.m. And I work literally 9 <laughs> to 6. And I'm, during the season, six days a week, it's Monday through Saturday. But it's a very predictable schedule. I literally have a punch clock. And, you know, I come in at nine and we, we do our thing and, and, and we wrap up at six. So he kind of has set up this, this schedule and the way we do the brewery to kind of keep it as normal a job as you can imagine. The difference is, is that it's year round. So, you know, I'm, I'm not getting the April to October, you know, uh, pure summer break. Uh, but in exchange, it's a much more sort of balanced schedule during uh, the year. So from that vantage point, it's much more like a traditional job rather than kind of this, this extremity for six months on and then, you know, six months off. Uh, it's much more sort of uh, spread out through the year. And 
uh, from your from your year plus there, what's your at, at this point in time? Kind of where where are you at, just sort of personally with the with the experience, and where do you where do you see the next the uh, as as we move question. into the yeah? I mean, your guys' brewing season technically hasn't even stopped, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, looking at, looking this, ahead, this year's been different. I mean, yeah, uh, obviously, yeah, you know, COVID has 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 really messed with everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not I'm not going to lie in terms of you know sales, production, etc. You know, it's kind of really sort of thrown the the whole schedule into a loop. I mean, literally today was the, our first shibori of the season, our first pressing. And uh, so, you know, uh, but we're, we're starting. I, I made koji this week as well for one of our daiginjos, and uh, we'll do the shikomi uh, for that next week. So I, I would say that it's only really this week that we've gotten back on to the sort of the schedule. And it's going to be, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's going to be sort of, you know, balls to the wall here for, uh, you know, through the, for the next six months. But uh, it's really only been now. I, it, it was a pretty light schedule in July and August, but pr predominantly due to the whole sort of COVID problem. Ordinarily, I think that would have been much busier to shop. I, I expected to have literally thousands of customers in for the Olympics, and you know that, that clearly didn't happen. So who knows what's going to happen next year? Yeah. But you know that's a big yeah. part of my business, and certainly the Rugby World Cup. Uh, that was crazy uh, for the six weeks that that went on uh, last fall. It was crazy, and uh, so. That is, you know, I stress that is a big part of, of what my daily job was on, on that side. But, but getting to your question, in terms of where, where do I take this from here, I would say very honestly, it's exceeded all of my expectations. I said, for, for me, it was much more that the physical side has been an adjustment. I'm much older than the other uh, two guys with me here. I think I'm twice the age of JJ. So <laughs> as you can imagine how as, as physical as it is at 29, imagine it at 56. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, uh, a lot of it has been, uh, I, it's certainly everything I wanted to learn about the business I've learned. And for here, you know, I just, I, I continue to want to sort of understand much more the nuance of this. Uh, I must admit, I'm, I'm really much of a, of a geek. If, uh, if you meet me personally, I, I've been out drinking with Andy, uh, both in Kyoto and in Hiroshima. And uh, I think he, he laughs at my database that I keep on my iPhone. Yeah, I, I, I literally take notes of every sake I've ever tasted. And so I, I'm approaching 1,500 uh, wow. sakes that I have uh, on a database on my phone from over 500 different breweries. So I've, I've gotten a pretty good sample of it. And, I, and this is like Kikizakashi type notes. You know, I put all the statistics, the Sando, Nihonchudo, uh, Semai Buai, you know, all of the statistics on it, the brewery name, uh, tasting notes. I take pictures of the labels, everything. And uh, so there is that geeky side of me that, uh, you know, that really enjoys sort of understanding the brand, but getting behind all the numbers. I mean, for, for me, I, I, I ask a lot of questions of, of the Chacho to sort of say, okay, you know, why are we doing this? You know, it's in terms of at what precise temperature do we want to do this? And so he's been very patient in terms of answering those questions. I think going forward, it's just kind of easing getting into that comfort role. And, uh, I enjoy, I am hoping that, you know, Kyoto gets the tourists back because I do enjoy that also that social aspect of the business. You know, Andy mentioned that it can be very isolating and lonely and it's true. I mean, there are many times and many days I'm literally in the brewery in the back by myself, you know, for hours on end. And, uh, but, you know, when we have the shop, it can be a pain because, you know, you have to drop what you're doing to, to go and, and, and deal with the foreign customers. But on the other hand, it's very social and, you know, they, they, they ask questions and, you know, they ask me, why are you doing this? How did you get here? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, sometimes it forces you to review. Yeah, you know, it's actually 
pretty special. You know, there, there's not that many of us. You know, I think Andy and I calculated, what are they, six or seven, like, foreign brewers in Japan? I mean, the list is tiny. Yeah. And, and so you it, look it, it at seems it, to fluctuate. You know, we're, in a, we're in a pretty exclusive club. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's good to appreciate that. Yeah, actually, I mean, I, I would want to ask the question we just asked you to, to the others as well, but because you might leave us and you use, you, you're going to a point, which is you're forming a club. And uh, if you take a step back, what do you think uh, foreign brewers or actually foreigners brewing in Japan can bring to the industry and, and, and to sake going forward? I, I think we bring a lot. And, and uh, you know, for, for the most part, one of the things that has been really fascinating is, is that, and, and, and our shop has been, I, I can't tell you what an education this has been. Uh, you know, we, we keep a map and each one from each country of every visitor we've had, they put a little gold sticker on a map and the map is completely filled. We've had literally visitors to the brewery from every corner of the globe. And one of the things that's really fascinating is learning the different taste profiles of the different cultures and people that come to the brewery. And that knowledge is something that I've been sort of accumulating and go back to my boss in terms of how do we kind of take this sake to the next level? Right now we're predominantly a, a Kyoto brand. We do some sales in, in, uh, in Tokyo and in some very limited exports uh, to, to Singapore and Taiwan. But one thing that I think a foreign brewer can bring is much more of a broader international perspective, particularly in terms of taste and how we might market the product to that. So I think as he's looking to expand the brand overseas, I think as a foreigner, you can bring perspective in terms of, okay, what might sell in New York and San Francisco or London or Paris or wherever. I think from that vantage point as foreigners, we've been there, we're of those cultures, we're more familiar with the kind of the nuance of the taste or more familiar with how it might pair with Western foods. In terms of just sort of adding a different side, different perspective to the way they view it, I think that knowledge is invaluable. And I, and I know, you know the, the management at my shop has really appreciated that. And I, I think that's something that, that you know, as a foreigner coming into this business, I wouldn't be shy about presenting because I think they truly wanna know. They recognize that if the sake industry is gonna survive, it needs to expand outside of Japan and it needs to expand the customer base. And, and how, you, how you do that, I think bringing a foreign perspective could be invaluable to a brewery. Yeah. Can I add that to that real quick? Um, uh, George was just saying about like, not just taste, um, the different taste flavor profiles, but one of the interesting things that I noticed while I was helping out on the tasting table was like the label as well. Um, I had, there was a couple from Germany that came in one time and it was during summer last year and it was the summer sake, which has like a kind of a, a blue, it's like a blue, uh, like, like sky with like these, like, uh, it, you know, like Japanese summers with fireworks kind of image, like a blue label with like the sky and the, like the stars and stuff like that. And a German couple was like, oh, that's interesting. This is a, a summer sake. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is the summer sake. It's blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, that, it, like the, the colors like really remind me of Christmas. Like, like for, for, from their perspective, the labeling colors, like the way that the, the design was, it was like, oh, this, this, it just looks like a, it reminds me of Christmas, like a Christmas sort of design. And I thought that was a very interesting, um, like depending on where you're selling something, the label and the, in, the impact that that might have can also be very different 
um, for seasons and all sorts of things like that, which I thought was kind of interesting, just to add to what George. What about you, Andy? I mean, you've got this six, what, five, six years experience now? Uh, yes, it's coming up for my fifth season. Um, but, but yeah, I think just touching on what George said about, you know, his enthusiasm for sake, um, you know, I, I, I know the tasting notes that he was talking about. They're, they're absolutely incredible, by the way. Um, and, and when he showed them to me, I was just, uh, you know, amazed that someone was as geeky as, as I am about sake. <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, there, there, there's that aspect of it. Um, you know, the, the, the reality is that um, there, there are some very, very enthusiastic uh, Japanese brewers, of course. Um, but that's not always the case when, when you go in. Some people, and there's nothing wrong with that, but some of the brewers, it, for them, it's just, it's just a place to work. Um, and I think one thing that maybe I noticed, um, you know, with a few of the staff that I've worked in, is they, they, they can be quite um, taken aback at how enthusiastic you are for, um, for, for Nihonshu. Um, and I think it's very, very important um, to, to have that. Um, you know, cu customers aside, um, you know, when they see a foreigner that's, that's just, you know, absolutely obsessed with, uh, with this Japanese product, um, I think it kind of raises the the morale a little bit as well in the in the brewery. People, all of a sudden, some of the brewers that that might not have really taken an interest in it outside of work, they think, well, oh, well, maybe I should check that place out, or you know, maybe I should do a couple of brewery visits in my spare time, or um, or maybe I should learn about that aspect that I hadn't thought about before. Um, so I th I think it's kind of maybe that I think if you're a foreign brewer. Um, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to be of the same ilk as me and George and JJ that were, you know, we're sake geeks. And um, so I think having us maybe around the brewery is, uh, is probably quite a positive um, influence. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's one plus point that, that foreigners can, uh, can bring to the brewery. I could see that Justin had a big smile on as well. <laughs> can you relate to that? I, I, I can relate to a lot of, yeah, we could, we could probably do a whole nother uh, episode on um, brewery culture um, and that could be a whole nother, yeah, ordeal. But I'm curious, um, for all three of you gentlemen, how has your relationship with sake changed or has it at all since you started brewing? Of course, obviously it takes up a lot more of your time, sure, but, um, you know, going from being somebody who thoroughly enjoys just the experience of going out and drinking the beverage or that social aspect or whatever, actually getting involved in that process. Has your relationship with the beverage changed at all for better or for worse? I, I, in, in, in my case, it's clearly for the better. I mean, it, it, it's just so much more of an appreciation for how this is actually made. You know, one of the things I often get asked, you know, and, and again, from a lot of the customers in the shop is, you know, what's the big deal? And, and look, I'm not going to lie. I, I'm, I'm I mentioned the, the beginning story that my epiphany moment was with a Daiginjo, but I, I'm, I, I am clearly a Junmai guy, uh, you know, now. And I think, you know, that, that, I think that inevitably happens to all sake drinkers where you start to appreciate a lot of the, the robustness, the textures. Uh, you can get a lot more flavors uh, and certainly a much more variety of flavor out of a, out of a Junmai than you can a Daiginjo. But nonetheless, I still have a great appreciation for, for Daiginjo's. And again, because it's a very elegant drink. And I think from, from a customer perspective, uh, 
getting them to appreciate that it can be elegant, I think is a first step in terms of introducing them to the world of sake and then letting them gradually appreciate the fact, okay, why don't I expand the taste profile? But I think the, as, a, as an entry point, the daiginjo is always a great way to do it. So, but you know, one of the things I often get asked is, you know, for example, there's different huge price points. And uh, one of the things I appreciate was, I'm not gonna lie, you know, when I was working for, uh, for the importer and you know, I had uh, uh, daiginjos in the portfolio, there was a big part of me, you know, sort of my own background in marketing uh, that said, you know, I think Daiginjo's was a lot of, frankly, puff, you know. The idea is, okay, you, you, you have a high polished sake and, uh, and you can charge a premium price for it, but, you know, really what's, what's involved here? Uh, I think it was much more of a marketing gimmick than it was in the actual production. Now that I actually work with, uh, we do a uh, Jumai Daiginjo that we polish all the way down to 35%, now that I actually make Daiginjo's polished to that level, I have a whole new appreciation that there is a lot that goes into producing that sake. Mm -hmm. So from now I sort of go in and when I talk to the customers, says, you are being undercharged. Yeah, the price should be higher. The yeah. price should be higher. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, because I mean, the amount of work, everything is more difficult. Every aspect of it is more difficult. And I have a much more, uh, much greater appreciation in terms of the actual skill set and how easy things can go wrong and really alter the flavor of the socket. You have to get every aspect correct. Temperature of the tank, temperature of the rice, temperature of the koji. That aspect of uh, sake making has really enhanced my appreciation for it. So when I taste a good bottle of sake, it, it's, it goes, I can already thinking in terms of what did they do? I want to know, okay, did they blend this yeast? I taste a little bit of the 18. Is there some, you know, nines or some seven in there? It's the idea of sort of going in and, and trying to really understanding it. And if anything, it's greatly enhanced my appreciation because now I know what, how hard it is to actually make it. So now you appreciate that much more when you drink it. Yeah. How about, how about you guys? Has you, how was your, I'm curious, how has your relationship with the beverage changed or has it? Um, I think for me, it's, it's changed uh, drastically, but the, the, the biggest point I would say, or the most obvious point is uh, my, my appreciation, I suppose similar to what George was saying, uh, my appreciation for just how complex, um, you know, Nihonshu is. Um, you know, after my, uh, you know, just before I, I started my first season, um, you know, I'd done a lot of self-study and, you know, I was reading magazines and things like that. Uh, and I was really kind of confident that, you know, uh, you know, you, you start to get maybe a bit big headed about it and you start thinking, yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I've got it all figured out. And then it hits you like a freight train when <laughs> first time you, you hear your toji uh, trying to explain something to, or you hear a conversation between two of the senior brewers. Um, and for me, that's happened numerous times where I've just been standing there with my, you know, jaw on the floor. Uh, you know, try, trying to take in uh, the, their level of uh, knowledge and, and expertise. Um, I think I, I think we mentioned Philip Harper a few times. He he always maintains that it takes ten years just to learn the basics, um, and that's ten years of doing it from you know, you know, e every day from morning till uh, till nighttime. Mm -hmm. um, so for for me, it was a real appreciation of um, of, of this is literally a lifetime of study ahead of me uh, and, I, and I'm just only at the beginning of it um, but but it 
but it's been great because I am quite a hyperactive person. I always want to be reading or, you know, watching something or learning something. Uh, and I feel like with, with Nihonshu, I've finally got something where it's, it's endless. I'm, I'm never going to kind of reach the, uh, that, that point where I go, that's it. I've got it. it. It's all worked out. I know what I'm doing. And I, I really don't think that's, that's, there's ever going to be a point where that happens. So, yeah, yeah. It provides that sustenance that you need. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. JJ, how, what about you? Yeah. I guess mine, like I, I started by talking about how it started off as an icebreaker and a way for me to like, you know, make friends and make connections with people. Um, and from that, it's turned more into getting into that, what um, Andy and George were saying about being geeky a little bit. Like they're obviously way ahead of me and being geeky about it, but like I've just, got past that like hey this is something that i really enjoy doing with friends and then oh i'm suddenly being given an opportunity to like work at a brewery oh uh, okay why not oh wait this is actually really really interesting wait this is really really interesting wait hang on let me go buy a book like like and i'm i'm stepping into that geeky zone um i guess is the best way to put it for me and how it's changed because before it was just something that was it was there and now you I, I made use of it made very good use of it um to make friends and make like acquaintances and connections and then now it's become much more of a like a, a solid focus um that is uh kind of interesting like in, in that that's if that makes sense yeah 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 absolutely can, can i just add though there's there's one caveat to all this and that is obviously um we're, we are restricted to our health and um, yeah yeah it, it, yeah there, there, there's always that kind of feed in the back of your mind that um yeah. you know that, that it is a very physical job um so i think you kind of have to start moving up the platform uh, or step aside um because you, you can only do it for as long as your your body lets you um, and and it, it there's also your you know your friends and family that you have to think about as well um, it's it's a it's a very very big uh, commitment to make, uh, and and you are definitely going to put uh, strain on uh, on on the people around you because you're not going to be available for um, you know for a good half of the year. So um, so yeah, you still have to kind of think about these things uh, as well. But um, but yeah, right right now I can't imagine uh, doing anything else. That, that I agree with, and and I just because I I, I do have to to wrap up here. Yeah. But, uh, I did uh, do a tease in terms of how I got to yeah. Mitsui Shuzo. And I yeah, please, please. Uh, tell us about it. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, they used to have a shop at the Heian Jingu. It's a very famous shrine here in Kyoto. Um, and I went there with my sister-in-law. And I, I walked into the shop, and I saw this T-shirt. It's literally just a black T-shirt with white block lettering that says multiple parallel fermentation. That's it. No explanation. There's no thing of sake nothing. And I told, looked at my sister. I literally laughed out loud. I looked at my sister-in-law and says, who gets this t-shirt? I said, if a Japanese guy comes in, he's not going to really understand. It's pretty advanced English words. And a typical Westerner is going to be able to read the English, but has no idea what it means. I said, the only person that's going to know what multiple parallel fermentation is, is somebody that's actually studied sake. Somebody that actually took like an SSI type course yeah. and knows what multiple parallel fermentation is. And I said, who's the target of this t-shirt? And I realized 
it was me. <laughs> this t-shirt was designed for me. I said, I got to meet this guy. I got, who, who is making this t-shirt? I have this to is the this calling person. card. This was the and, calling card, right? Yes. And I literally, no joke. I literally went to the brewery. I found out where the brewery was. I went there the next day and I, I walked into the shop. They were doing a, hosting a private tasting. And uh, I met who I now know is the, uh, the wife of the, uh, of the brewery who was helping out. I introduced myself. I helped out with the tasting. She brought out her husband. We exchanged business cards. We stayed in touch. We became Facebook friends. I started attending his events in Kyoto. I said, we need to work together. This is just perfect. I mean, I live in Kyoto. I already had an apartment here. My wife's from Kyoto. Uh, I love Kyoto. I love your brewery. I, this, this, we have to make this work. And a year later, you know, there I was. And so, uh, that's God's honest truth. That's how I ended up at the brewery. Wow. But I love it because it's just the creativity and the, and the geekiness of, frankly, my own boss. I mean, as geeky as we are, he's even geekier. I don't think I have ever met anyone who told me I got into the world of sake. I got quite deep and then I just sort of realized it wasn't for me. And then I stepped out and, or, or just kind of put their foot into the sake world. And they were like, no, I'm not pursuing this. This isn't, this isn't interesting. This is, everyone, once they open that door, once they go through that door, they get deeper and deeper into the world until, yeah, it becomes a part of your life. Gentlemen, I mean, you, I don't know if you were inspired by, by Philip, but you've been most inspiring today. Yeah. And um, maybe after listening to the show, some of our listeners uh, are starting to think that they want to have a similar experience or build a similar experience. Uh, I mean, you've, you've had different passes that led you to that, to that position you're having today, but uh, would you like to offer a, a word of advice or uh, on, uh, how, how to get there? On... Well, um, first and foremost, uh, de definitely go for it. If you think that you want to make that, that commitment, um, then, then, then I would recommend it to, uh, to anyone. Um, you know, the experience that, I, that I've had and, as I said, all the things that it's opened up and the friends that I've made that, um, you know, being honest, I probably wouldn't have, um, you know, been, been friends with some of these people from different age groups and what have you. Um, so, so, yeah, de definitely go for it. But, but de go, go into it with, with, a, with an open mind. Um, you know, you know don't, don't try and sort of have an image in your head of what it's going to be because, as you've probably heard, Three, three breweries tonight with all completely different setups and uh, and they all have their own quirks and, and ways of doing things um, but also be, be real, realistic about it. it it is a very very challenging job um, you will inevitably have to make uh, changes to, to, to your lifestyle and what have you um, you know be, be aware of the fact that it's not just your own safety it's the safety of the other brewers around you as well um, th there is a serious aspect that you, you have to think about that, um, but if you go into it with, you know, as I said, with a, you know, with an open mind and listen to your seniors uh, and listen to what they're telling you, um, then then I, I highly recommend it. It's it's a, it's an incredible uh, life experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gentlemen, yeah, we we we've been on we've been staring at the screen for a while. Um, you're probably <laughs> hungry. I'm probably hungry. Yeah, gentlemen, thank you so much. Um, and this has been one more episode of Sake on Air. For those of us, or sorry, for our listeners, for those of you uh, out there who would like to continue to follow what we're up to, you can follow us at, at 
uh, Sake on Air on Facebook, Twitter, or on Instagram. Feel free to send your questions or comments to questions at sakeonair.com. And otherwise, we will be back in a couple more weeks. Uh, Sake on Air is made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast under normal times from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center. Uh, all the production here is handled by Mr. Frank Walter and uh, Export Japan and is a co-production with Posca Productions. Everyone, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you all have a lovely evening, lovely weekend, and we will talk to you very soon. There you go. And there's the perfect end. There we go. Yes. <laughs> there guys. All right. Oshimai. Yeah, Oshimai. That was the signal. Oh, there we go. You're going to wave to everybody. Hello. Say bye-bye. Everybody's just about to hang bye. up. Thanks, guys. Bye.